The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media, technology, markets and policy, music. What else? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I didn't see the cars as anything specifically amazing. I didn't appreciate it until later in life when I was old enough to think about things like that. At the time, it just was like, oh, there's my dad on TV. You know, change the channel. And so I come from his daughter and her daughter. So in the Scandinavian naming tradition, I named my business Axel's daughter. In case you missed them, one more summer round of Full Disclosure Rewind spanning the son of Cars frontman Rick Ocasek, an entrepreneurial former Wall Streeter turned best-selling author, a Richmond activist finding her voice advocating on behalf of the poor, and a Virginia mom with ancestral ties to Swedish baking. Elaborate stuff. She's bringing that culinary magic stateside. Take a breath and stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with the backstory of Aaron Okasik, son of the late Cars frontman Rick Okasik, on what it's like to find your musical voice in midlife. And in the new age of Spotify and streaming. Joining me from Brooklyn, you know, no sleep till Brooklyn is Aaron Akasic. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but now he's a New Yorker. You might recognize the last name, Rick Okasic. The late front man of the cars was his father. And he is now taking his first dive into music in the spirit of his father. The full-length 2022 album is called Take Backs. You can get it on all the streamers. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks for that amazing introduction. Yeah. Well, Doing I didn't well. even even get to the beginning of it because you're always with the last name. You're always going to be asked about your father, who was so much larger than life. You know, you came of age in the 1970s and you were maybe a kindergartner when the band really exploded with its debut album in the late 70s. And it was a, a shock to the world when your father passed away early and, 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 and no one kind of expected it a couple of years ago in his home in Manhattan. And it was also interesting to me in that I never realized he had a musically inclined son until I found you on Instagram. It's funny. I, I, don't, I never thought that I was musically inclined and never thought that this would be something I would ever pursue in my entire life. I stayed away from it as far as I can remember. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do anything but music. So was it interesting as the studio, was it in the basement of the Gramercy Brownstone where he lived and passed away? Yeah, he he always had a studio in his basement from when we were living in Boston. He had a studio in a basement. New York, he has a studio in a basement. It's actually a nice thing to have. I, I kind of want one myself. <laughs> I mean, take me back to your very first memories. As you know, full disclosure, listeners, I, I am a massive Cars fan, you know, especially the work of Benjamin Orr, who was the late co-front man, your, your late father's friend, and he was the bassist as well. And I saw this picture of you as a little kid being held by Benjamin Orr in a fur coat. And then another one where you're like holding a can of beer. I can't imagine the hippie commune or whatever it was in Newton, Mass, when you grew up in the 1970s. Oh, that was an amazing place. I mean, this was um, a 
art scene in Newton, Mass, in this giant house where people came in and out constantly. And they like housed my dad in this studio apartment above a garage, uh, him and my mom and me. And I was just born. And there was kids running around and there were, they, we, we would have plays in the big house where we would all dress up and and actually perform plays. And these guys were like musicians themselves and they owned like music stores all around Boston. And it was just this great environment. I can see why my dad and mom wanted to be there. I mean, it was an incredible place to grow up. And those were the milk, the Milkwood years with your dad and Benjamin Orr pre-cars. I mean, it came out in 1973 when you were born. And this stuff was like summer breeze, you know, borderline hippie uh, dentist office music. It's unrecognizable if you go listen to it on YouTube. It really was. I'm not sure if he had anything but an acoustic guitar. So maybe that was why. And of course, Ben's amazing voice. I mean, how could you not want to sing folk songs when, when you're singing with Ben? What is in Inception in your mind the first kind of memory of stardom? You're in kindergarten when their debut album, self-titled album, comes out, which really hit it out of the park. There was a DJ in Boston who spun it mercilessly. It got a tremendous amount of FM radio play. It was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, the legendary music producer. Songs like Just What I Needed. Gosh, I mean, you can listen to it. It's just nonstop. Every single track is essential. Moving in stereo, all mixed up, which is a personal favorite. At that point, I mean, this band really got escape velocity into the 80s. Yeah, I mean, and I heard it right, and they recorded it really quick, like 12 days or something. I don't know. Like, they were practiced and they were ready to go, like, when that album was recorded. When I noticed Stardom, I don't think I ever did. <laughs> it was like, oh, we're moving out of this, you know, garage. And now we have, like, another house that's all ours. And for me, it was like, oh, I don't get to, like, hang out with these, like, 18 kids anymore. You know, maybe just, like, <laughs> that's all I thought about. But your dad then seriously hit the road between recording and, and Panorama then, and then Heartbeat City. By the time they were, let's say you were 10 years old, MTV is really in the firmament and the cars are a cornerstone of MTV. I saw one of these ads for MTV and its greatness. I want my MTV. You know, it's David Bowie. It's Def Leppard. Very 1983. Michael Jackson thriller. And of course, your father. I want my MTV. Uh, yeah. and, and they were they were one of the true founders of the medium they understood how to put out a great video it, it won one of the first video music awards i believe yeah they did uh, yeah yeah you might think with the charlex it was just like a natural progression like in life it's like for me and for him he came out right at that perfect time where you know there's this visual medium to go along with it and they were kind of arty anyway so they kind of like embraced this like video generation that was exploding around the same time i think it just kind of like they were perfect for that time how much would you interact with the band members the various band members from you know greg hawks to david robinson um the uh, elliot easton the the masterful guitarist i mean were they coming in into the house or at this point were they on the road 300 days a year no there was no more house when they made it as far as i was concerned they were on tour all the time and when they weren't, they probably each went home to their own families. So um, I would only, so after that, after that kind of breakout, I think I just saw them whenever I was on school break, I would go sit on side stage or if uh, they came to Boston, I'd go to a concert and that's when I would see the whole band. 
<laughs> they were on it all the time. I can oh, imagine being a ten year old. It's when I first got MTV. Yeah. Oh well, I loved them. I loved MTV. That's where I got all my music. But I just saw them there as another band, <laughs> as another band on MTV. I didn't see the Cars as anything specifically amazing. I didn't appreciate it until later in life when I was old enough to think about things like that. At the time, it just was like, oh, there's my dad on TV. You know, change the channel or not. Wow. Like, I've seen this video a hundred times. Like, I saw him. Like, he brought it home and showed me the video before it was on MTV. You can probably imagine that just like any parent, you just kind of like don't really appreciate their talent until until later. But there weren't any efforts at like sharing an acoustic guitar or getting you a baby guitar or anything like that because I oh, want yeah. to get at the genesis of like what the plant, what seeds were planted but you weren't I mean they handed me a guitar when I was 7. I couldn't stand it. My brother picked it up and then becomes virtuosic later in life, but you didn't have the 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 urge kind of within to pursue this in your childhood? Well, I did actually. He did get me a great mini guitar, like a kids one. It was electric. It was really cool. It was yellow. And he taught me, you know, a couple car songs like like that was like really easy for me to uh, learn. Like my first, the dangerous that type. First, that was it. Thank you. <laughs> so I could play dangerous type right off the bat. And his uh, manager at the time managed Devo, so I would get like all the Devo costumes, like the like the like the potatoes and the red hats. Like, cause he had so many of them left over. So me and my friends would dress up like Devo and like play <laughs> guitar and like pretend we were in a band. So yeah, we really, I mean, music was a big part of growing up. I just, you know, never thought I would actually do it, but it was like the only extension I had for fun was like, oh, pretend I'm in a band. Like that was how we played. We didn't really go like play football. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Aaron Okasik, he is, of course, son of the late Cars frontman Rick Okasik, uh, is a dad in Brooklyn. I'm looking at the bio where you wrote, my dad was this amazing songwriter and musician. It seemed almost impossible to try and compare. I mean, to say the least, because not only do you put out this incredible body of award-winning work that dominates the 80s, if you're the Rick Okasik-led Cars, but then he goes on to produce and mentor incredible acts like Weezer and not a surf. And, you know, the killers faded him during the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction a few years ago. He was an album guy. He was uh, interested in many things. And this was someone who was produced in turn by the likes of Roy Thomas Baker and Mutt Lang, you know, famously the guy who tortured Def Leppard and, and other players. And I think he was the producer of, of Heartbeat City. So your dad, to say the very least, was a perfectionist. Yeah, I mean, well, he was producing bands before that. He had a studio in Boston, Synchro Sound, where, you know, the cars recorded. And he was bringing in bands like the Bad Brains and Iggy Pop. In the early 80s, Romeo Void, he did like one single for them. And like he owned his own studio in Boston. I think he was ready to do that right from the get-go. You were listening to my recent interview with Aaron Akasik, son of the late cars frontman Rick Okasik. Next, my chat with Bill Cohen, prolific best-selling author who in his past life was a Wall Street investment banker. He talked about bringing that spirit of equity ownership to the declining world of feature journalism. Joining me from the coast of Massachusetts is best-selling author William D. Cohen. Uh, Bill Cohen, yes, sir. Uh, he has authored several bestsellers, including House of Cards. There's one coming up that's going to drop later this fall on 
The Fall of General Electric. Uh, you've written it for Vanity Fair, The New York Times. You've covered everything from Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Duke Lacrosse. As I call, as I call you, you are a scribe of all trades, and in a past life, you were an investment banker. How are you, sir? I'm I'm great, Robin, and thank you for having me in that kind introduction. Well, I've always been a fan of the byline, and you successfully, more than successfully, went from the investment banking and pitch book life to one of being a prolific author. I mean, the things I just remember, the Vanity Fair bylines, once you start reading one of your essays, you can't stop. It could be about a, a you know, hedge fund family's fall. It could be about Goldman Sachs, his culture, the Duke lacrosse saga, which people might forget, uh, that nightmare out of North Carolina that was racially tinged that turned out to be so much of a hoax. I mean, you wade into these issues and I've always been a fan of your byline, and finally I have you on the show. So getting all of that organ music aside, sir, how did you end up at Puck News? Tell me about Puck. I listened to the podcast. I used to work with John Kelly at Bloomberg Business Week. He has assembled quite a stable of high-prestige bylines, you, Dylan Byers, Julia Yaffe. Tell me the backstory. Well, of course, I used to work with John at Vanity Fair. Uh, I was a Vanity Fair special correspondent. Uh, starting in 2008 and continuing until last year when I uh, joined John as a founding partner at Puck. And I, I think, you know, part of it was probably my tenure at Vanity Fair had run run its course, you know, after I was like perhaps the last surviving writer uh, from the, you know, the Graydon Carter days. Um uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, Radhika Jones was trying to put her own uh, imprint on it. So uh, more and more stuff that I would write would never get published. And so I also felt very strongly that journalists and writers are content providers. And, you know, not only should they receive a salary or a halfway decent salary, which, of course, is nothing like banking compensation, but more right. importantly, they should get equity. They should have equity in the enterprise so that if and when, you know, there's a payday for the equity holders, like there was with Politico and, and, and Axios and Business Insider, you know, among others, even BuzzFeed, uh, you know, had its version of a payday, that the content providers, the journalists, the ones who were sort of making it really all happen, on a daily basis should get equity, should have equity, and should benefit from that. So I felt very strongly that that should be the case, and very few places were doing that. Very few places uh, shared that same vision that I had with John, and you know, John was one of them, to his credit. And so it was actually a pretty easy decision, um, you know, given this opportunity. You know, I remember at, at uh, Bloomberg having this conversation with John Kelly in the Sky Lobby is, uh, you know, having also gone from a Wall Street career sort of out of college where we had a P&L at a trading desk where you were a profit center immediately, it always stunk to be a cost center at various mastheads, really, whether you were an online publication or, uh, you know, a masthead at the New York Times or at Smart Money or at Business Week or you know, any of these Time Inc. publications, you were always kind of an interchangeable car, a part. You were like a side of beef. And the thought experiment I had with John, I think well before he decided to go off and help start Puck News, was what if you what if you set up shop outside the New York Times, you know, at the Port Atrocity <laughs> bus terminal, and any senior byline or esteemed byline that took a massive buyout, you just warehoused them and created a 
publication, I don't know, you could call it not New York Times, would that then drive revenue? Would that drive enterprise value? Would the talent, as you will, the creators, the content creators be more than just the kind of a commodity where you could replace them with younger, cheaper reporters? I mean, I started before I was a Wall Street investment banker. Uh, I had gone to Columbia Journalism School and then I went to the Raleigh Times in Raleigh, North Carolina, as uh, the Wake County Schools reporter. Uh, ironically, I'd never been to a public school in my life, but there I was covering public education because I had done my thesis at Columbia Journalism School on schools in Harlem. Uh, but I was always like flummoxed. You know, this was like instinctual with me. You know, why, as you said, we were being treated as cost centers. And I, you know, I was getting paid $13,000 a year you know, working my butt off, breaking stories that were bringing readers in and advertisers in. And, you know, the Daniels family uh, was, you know, getting rich as Croesus, uh, <laughs> sold the paper for $300 million to McClatchy and uh, rode off into the sunset. And, you know, I was making $13,000 a year. And I couldn't figure out why we were just viewed as cost centers. And then you go to Wall Street and you're, you're viewed as revenue generators. Yeah. Same person, you know, you know, not terribly different job. I mean, I wasn't writing, but my job was to get people to trust me. My job was to uh, be able to juggle more than one ball at a time. My job was to be a self-starter. My job was to, you know, execute deals. But at least on Wall Street, you know, the talent was paid extremely well and was viewed as as revenue generators. And, and I couldn't figure out why journalism had the exact opposite view and why journalists stood for that. I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out. Now, obviously, it doesn't seem to happen quite that way in TV journalism, uh, right. such as it is. But for some reason, now, like when I write my books, obviously, I'm a principal. I'm an equity holder. In fact, I'm the one selling my equity in the project to a publisher who becomes right. my partner, as you well know, having uh, written a fabulous book about Miami. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, to me, it but just Bill, seemed totally natural. But Bill, there's always been someone... So here's the deal, and I don't want it to get inside baseball, but there's always someone fronting in advance, whether it's a salary for a masthead and a bonus arrangement or back office or benefits or a book publisher well, that's okay. Saying, I mean, if so you're, there's someone you know, kind of taking on that risk, that initial advance risk. It's not like you're, you're, well, you're, you're okay, eating what people, you kill. Or if you, people if you go who to take Substack. on risks, you know, deserve to get rewarded. I mean, I could self-publish. So you know, we now have the possibility of self-publishing. Uh, it's right. the kind of same calculus somebody would go through if they were deciding to, you know, do a direct listing or take themselves public through. A, a, you know, a stupid SPAC deal or something. I mean, you know, you can raise capital and get public, you know, without being going to an underwriter on Wall Street. You can get published without going to the equivalent of a Wall Street underwriter, which is a publishing house, one of the big five and maybe big four if the Simon & Schuster merger uh, ends up going through. I mean, so it's a question of, you know, one thing that underwriters bring to the table one thing publishers bring to the table is you know massive distribution system uh, marketing muscle access to you know institutional investors in the case of 
Wall Street firms or book buyers in the case of publishers. And, you know, it's an established system. You can buck that system if you want to. And some have incredibly successfully, like, you know, Google, which did a, you know, a direct or a, or a, an auction a listing. But as far and few between, you have to be very, very confident, you know, to, I mean, and highly confident is, uh, uh, Mike Milken might say. Highly confident. I love how you pulled out that uh, Highly confident. Predator's Ball reference, yeah. you and Beverly Hills. We're joined exactly. by Bill Cohen from Nantucket. He is, as I described him in the tease-up for this show, a multiple-time best-selling author, Wall Street Demystifier, Scribe of All Trades. The hot book that's going to drop uh, later this fall is Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, General Electric. Where do I even start with you? I know you've covered this whole Warner Brothers discovery uh, mess out of the gate quite well, and you're sourced really well at the company. What is it, Bill, about the former Time Warner that has vexed so many people? It's like this femme fatale that has destroyed companies like AOL. Uh, you know, Jeff Buke has made a lot of money. AT&T, I mean, I thought, yeah. here's the deal. AT&T took on all that debt to buy Time Warner, which had a magazine empire, which it had dumped. It had Obviously, HBO was the crown jewel with Game of Thrones and the Sopranos archive and everything else going on. I thought the wisdom of that deal was AT&T was going to get something sticky for its cell phone subscribers to differentiate it so that it's not a commodity versus T-Mobile or Verizon. And they quickly disgorged that. They took on way too much debt. There was a culture clash between, the, I guess, the suits in Texas and the, the talent wranglers in New York and in California. So why did that not work? And why did Discovery end up as the most effective suitor? Well, I mean, uh, it, it didn't work, you know, primarily because they paid way too much for it. Uh, their stock was immobilized. They'd also made a bad acquisition with DirecTV. The mystery to me is why John Stanky, the architect of the DirecTV deal, as well as the Time Warner deal, is now the CEO of the company and has managed to survive as the CEO of AT&T, despite DirecTV now being spun off and Time Warner being merged into Discovery. You know, that's a mystery to me. Why they did the deal in the first place is a mystery to me. Uh, you know, AT&T... You know, and I did a lot of banking business for AT&T and, you know, I was helped create what became AT&T Wireless. And, you know, they were really good at providing wireless, you know, relatively good. I mean, uh, you know, they weren't perfect or anything, but, you know, they created a nationwide uh, wireless business and ran it well and profitably. And, you know, then all this suddenly decided they needed to be in the content business. What, so was, did a banker convince them? I mean, who did that? It was the worst kept secret that Time Warner after its AOL misadventure, which took years to kind of unwind and they had to throw off the cable business and they had to uh, dispose of the magazine business unceremoniously, that it was for sale. And this guy, the CEO of Time Warner, Jeff Bukis, was looking for a golden parachute. So who <laughs> was the genius that sold it to these old kind of telecom guys? These were the former uh, Pac Bell, Southwestern Bell, which rebranded right. itself singular SBC. as AT&T, yeah. SBC. So was it a banker who convinced them? Well, I mean, uh, this, you know, you need again, to pay for this. I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if, if a banker sort of surfaced the idea or uh, or not, or whether just like Stanky had this in his head uh, for a while and, and and convinced, you know, his bosses and the board, um, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, really sure about that. 
but I'm sure uh, you know bankers got well paid, and you know don't forget it became a cause celeb because you know Trump tried to block the purchase, and then they sued. own CNN. They own CNN, they right? CNN, I mean, which obviously Trump didn't like, and he had his uh, Justice Department sue uh, AT and T to block the merger, which. I bet, you know, of course, AT&T ended up winning. Uh, I bet they wish they had lost it uh, so that they could have not closed on the deal. It was a, you know, a windfall for, uh, it was probably the first real windfall for for Time Warner shareholders because, <laughs> you know, after the AOL deal, which was all stock, you know, it all went kaflooey. But I mean, right. Time Warner has always been a mongrel company. I mean, it was combined, you know, Time and Warner were combined together. It's always been sort of the you know in the land of misfit toys, and now it's uh, poor David Zaslov's uh, you know yoke. And and the problem is not that he can't run the assets or relate to the content providers, or uh, it's that he's got this incredible burden of fifty five billion dollars in debt that AT and T stuck him with is the price to doing the deal. And that's becoming quite burdensome for him at the moment. That was some of my chat with best-selling author Bill Cohen. I wanted to flash back to my visit with Brianne Armbrust, the Richmond activist who is on the front lines of the battle against hunger and malnutrition amid spiking food and housing inflation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are at the Neighborhood Resource Center in the east end of Richmond, Virginia. We call it Fulton at the Neighborhood Resource Center, which is a non-for-profit educational, cultural, nutrition center here. Uh, Executive director is Brian Armbrust. Uh, You just gave me a tour of the kitchen. And uh, hunger is front and center again because when you see food prices soar in inflation, obviously it disproportionately hits people whose disposable income overwhelmingly goes just to keeping mouths fed. Yes, we we have run into that and we're running into it here even as a business. So right now I'm struggling to be able to source milk for Neighborhood Resource Center for our food program. We're doing the best that we can with the suppliers that are available, but they're dealing with staffing problems and shortage uh, of workers. And so that's leading to us having to figure out how do we sustain our USDA food program here that requires that we provide milk with every serving. We're seeing it with produce prices and what's happened with the the border in Texas with the refusal by the governor there to allow produce to come across the border for a period of time. I think the concern that we had around food access prior to 2020 and in the early parts of the pandemic are only going to increase. And for a neighborhood here in Greater Fulton, we don't have a grocery store and it can take an hour and a half to get to the closest. um, Explain for our listeners what the default is when you don't have a grocery store. Are you going into a gas station and buying milk or Lunchables? There are very minimal options here, in particular in Greater Fulton. Um, We don't have corner stores, so it's not set up the same way like in New York or in some other cities where you might have a bodega that you can go into and purchase food. This particular neighborhood really doesn't have that. We do have gas stations. So sometimes there's options in gas stations. But what we often find that it can lead to is people going without food. So we run a food pantry program. We're the only delivery food pantry program in the city. And we deliver food on the third Friday of each month to residents that live here in the 23231 zip code so that people don't have to worry about that transportation. But we are seeing, you know, the impacts of, in this neighborhood, 50 to 60 years of divestment from the neighborhood by government systems. What did this neighborhood look like 50, 60 years ago? 
there was a flourishing community of African-American or black families that lived in an area called Historic Fulton or Fulton Bottom, which is down the hill from Fulton Hill, where we are right now. They had a, a flood. There were actually two floods, but one that ended or happened in the 1970s that led to mass displacement. Homes were torn down and people were moved out of the neighborhood. But that area in the neighborhood had a grocery store and other businesses. Here on Fulton Hill, there was a bank, there was a post office, there was a school. We're in the building that used to be the post office, but those things were closed over decades. And so what we've seen is resources that exist in this neighborhood get pulled out over uh, the last, I would say, 40 or 50 years, leaving residents with nothing. We talk on the show about trauma a lot, and I love to quote this, not a surf song, uh, do it again. They say, maybe this weight is a gift, like I have to learn what I could lift. In rapid succession, you survived both domestic violence and you survived brain tumors. Tell me about that experience, kind of your re-inception, if you will. You know, I would say that I had already already been a resilient person. I think I was that way, very serious as a child, like very much caring about what happened to my fellow person, whoever was around me, trying to look out for the person that, that was being picked on on the play yard. That was kind of the thing that I did. But I think what I understood is there was a little bit of fearlessness that came out of the, the situation, both with domestic violence that I encountered, as well as surviving two brain surgeries in a matter of a few years and uh, suffering a really massive stroke where I actually passed away um, in that process. I, I always have to ask what you saw <laughs> on that side. Um, it, it's I just read the book after. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, my grandfather came to me when I was in the ambulance. So I was on the gurney and I felt myself dying. I knew that I was dying. And right before the, they had to stop, it was a volunteer rescue squad that wasn't prepared for what they encountered when they found me at home. They had to pick up a firefighter, and I could hear everything and see everything. I was very aware of what was going around, um, going on around me. And in the moment right before he took the um, epinephrine that they used to shoot, I guess, into my heart to bring me back, my grandfather appeared on the stretcher, and he was sitting, and he said, not now. Your grandfather who had passed. My grandfather who had passed away. So it, it sounds like this is a made-up thing. No, it's pretty universal. Really in that moment, whether it's that I just drew on the strength that I needed to fight through, and he, he was the person I always looked to as my, you know, my hero or my resource. So he just appeared to me and was like, not now. And it, I could feel like him patting me on my leg saying, not now. And they shot me in the heart with the injection that they did, and I came right back. But I, I suffered an anoxic brain injury from lack of oxygen to the brain. That was 2010. You continued with your job in various uh, office roles. And um, uh, what were you doing up until about 2019? Um, so I would say prior to 2019, I've worked for labor unions. Mm -hmm. I was at the time in 2010, I was working for a telecommunications company where I was a union vice president with a union. That was my first union. And the day that I had my hemorrhagic stroke was actually the day that our center closed. So I was laid off as of that day. It all happened on the same day. So I was at home and I knew that this was the last day that I would work. It was a Saturday. So we actually weren't working on that day, but it was my last day of employment when I suffered that stroke. Went on to work for a labor union, United Food and Commercial Workers, and did that for six years and then worked with a statewide public sector union here in Virginia. So decided that I had already faced death at that point, and I had an idea of what was really important for me for my life going forward, and that was at that time to fight for workers' rights. And you said you started using Western and Eastern medicine, including yoga, and you started grad school three weeks after that first stroke and graduated 
14 months after that, even so, you experienced two more events since then. So this is this has kind of been a kind of a staccato of challenge in the decade that you've been finding your calling. Yes. You know, in 2010, I became disabled for the first time in my life. I, I had to deal with disabilities. I had, and I still have mild right side paralysis, but that, at that time I couldn't even touch the top of my head. I was using a cane to walk. So I went to grad school. I couldn't drive. My parents had to drive me. I wasn't allowed to drive yet. I used a cane for two years. I couldn't touch the top of my head. Now, as I'm demonstrating to you, I can touch the top of my head. Yeah. Um, the two subsequent ischemic attacks that I dealt with affected the other side of my body. So I have bilateral issues. I can't always tell that the right side of my body is connected. It's a really interesting thing. I went on to become a yoga teacher. I was already doing yoga before I'd had my, my first stroke and went on to become a yoga teacher. And I primarily teach individuals with chronic illnesses and disabilities because I feel like we get left out a lot. And so those are the populations that I work with the most. Um, and I also am a death doula. So I work with people and their families as family members are in hospice to help people transition. So Brian, in your rehabilitation there, in those moments kind of in, in the bed, on bed rest and everything, you could fall into a deep depression. You found a deeper meaning. You said there was kind of a fearlessness and that you already faced death. Yeah. I, I think I made the decision that um, I felt like my my life's mission was to be a servant to other people. So I felt like it was my role to step into the gap. And that's really, I had always felt that way as a kid, but I decided very strongly that if I see instances of, of human suffering or places where people are marginalized and there's any ability for me to step in and make that situation better, that I can do that. Not as a savior, like not, I'm not trying to save people. But I do feel like with my background, which is really unique, that I have a prime opportunity to use my voice and help other people, more importantly, um, be able to access their voices to make changes in the world for the better. And what were you, I mean, was there, was there a voice kind of atop one shoulder saying, but how am I going to make a living? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there always has been. I, I went to both undergrad and grad school um, as a person that didn't actually want to go to college, but because I felt like I needed to have degrees in order to find employment, I never expected, I wanted to be a teacher. I never expected to end up with the career path that I've had, but I knew that there were things going on in the world that I felt weren't right and I needed to do something about it. My dad has, has compared me to Don Quixote, not in the bad way, um, like not in the way most people think that Don Quixote was silly and tilting at windmills. he was tilting at windmills and the windmills were imaginary and and all of that. But my dad likens it to the fact that like, you know, I feel very strongly that we can change some things. And I, I take on challenges that a lot of people wouldn't take on because I've overcome so much. Brian, hmm. tell me about um, the, uh, the, the mission and the kind of the struggle, let's say 2019, and then everything that happened after this kind of rapid fire calamity, you found you fit, you know, you, you, you decided to leave the day job and the office grind or the nine to five thing in 2019 and the pandemic hits us in 2020. Right. Yeah. I, I thought I was making a quality of life decision. So I left a, a employment situation that had a pension and a 401k and a, a much larger salary than I currently make to try to have a better quality of life, to work closer to home, to um, be able to merge the work that I had been doing in my personal life as a community organizer to do mm -hmm. that as part of my professional work didn't know what I was walking into organizationally here. And three months later, then we're dealing with the pandemic. So um, couldn't have anticipated any of what we ran across, but 
I feel like there was a reason why I was put here and prepared to be here in this place and all the work that I have done in my personal and professional life up to 2020 put me here to be able to do what I'm doing. That was Brianne Armbrust, the Richmond social justice advocate who oversees the Neighborhood Resource Center of Greater Fulton. Finally, as a cardamom essence bonbon for you, some of my recent chat with Ingrid Schatz, the Virginia mom who has found a calling bringing the ornate Swedish baked goods of her bloodline to the U.S. Joining me in studio is Ingrid Schatz. She is the owner and founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery. It is a full Scandinavian, interesting, esoteric bakery. I mean, esoteric, not in a bad way, but where are you going to find other things like princess cake and fika and everything? You launched it in the middle of the pandemic in January of 2021. How are you? I am very well. How are you? Well, I got to tell the listener, I'm great. And I've been psyched to do this because I think I met you. I heard of your legend at Elwood Thompson's, the famous local corner market here in Richmond, Virginia. And you were the talented but elusive baker. I was a big fan of your croissants. Others would line up for your gluten-free work, which was like best in class. I remember you did some sort of hostess thing that was done vegan that nobody could believe. That was all on you. And I was like, who is this person? We can't really talk about her. It's in like hush voices. She's a very serious Scandinavian synchronized (laughs) swimmer. And as I was reaching out to meet you and everything, I learned that you went off and struck out on your own. Next thing I see all over Instagram are these beautiful cakes and these invitations to order directly from you. Tell me how it started, what the genesis of this idea was. Yeah. So it's been a wild ride, I've got to be honest. So it has been something that's been in my mind ever since I got into baking. Um, Not necessarily exactly what it's become, um, but it's always the idea of having my own Scandinavian bakery has always been at the back of my mind. And so, you know, the pandemic was in full swing. Uh, Work was kind of slowing down and it was hard being in the kitchen and there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, So at the end of 2020, Congress had passed a law allowing people to take FMLA, so take leave, to take care of their kids if they are, you know, home because of school closures. And all of my kids were home because of school closures. And the law that they passed made a rare change, which made FMLA paid, um, so I took advantage of that at the end of 2020 um, before the law expired and got my act together and decided not to go back to work. So what were the considerations here? There's always a leap of faith. What with COBRA, mm-hmm. you talk about FMLA. Yeah. There's a whole other monkey wrench in the situation and yeah. the kids are kind of remote, not remote, going back and forth. Suddenly you're thrust into the role. We've had other guests on. You're really a, a teacher. CEO of the house. You have to be a breadwinner. It's kind of an impossible task. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. So there were a lot of considerations. um, But to be honest, you know, I don't want to paint my former employer in any kind of negative light because I really loved working there. But I, I had been there for eight years and I had done everything and seen everything. And I was I was tired and I was bored. So it was time for me to go on to something new and kind of chase a dream instead of just kind of going through the motions and talked with my husband about it. You know, he was very supportive and is very supportive and was like, we're going to be fine. He has a really great job. We've all got health coverage through that. So there were privileges that I had that 
helped me make this what this is. And I'm very grateful for all of it. Ingrid, how do you test the waters? I mean, I know of people who are thinking even before they do a pop-up or a food truck to have people over, influencers over for a dinner or lunch or to kind of test drive their work. Yeah. How did you realize that you had this in you? In addition, did you, I mean, did you do it as favors for people cooking these gorgeous, I mean, they look like artwork. I'm going to post them on the website when you do a princess cake and even the, the drop of water on top of it, the way you, I mean, you have to truly be an artist to do it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is something that I've done professionally for a very long time and I've done it, you know, I studied in France. I worked in France for a number of years before coming back. So it's, you know, it's not just a hobby out of my house. It is like a true passion and it's something I love to do. But you weren't cooking, you weren't baking and selling the Scandinavian sweets out of Elwood Thompson's. So how did you test drive that? Well, so to be honest, I kind of didn't. You know, most people would do a some kind of market research and be like, is there a a Scandinavian population in Richmond, Virginia? Are there enough people to support a business like this. And, you know, I just took the leap of faith doing what I know and doing what I love um, and doing something that I have a story behind. Tell me the story. So the story of Axel's daughter starts in, I think, 1932 is when the original bakery opened called Axel's Sons Conditori in Krihanstad, Sweden. Mm. Um, my great-grandfather and his brother opened a bakery, conditori, in Sweden, and um, it's still in operation today. Uh, it's not in the family anymore, but it is still a working bakery in Sweden. And so I come from his daughter and her daughter. So in the Scandinavian naming tradition, I named my business Axel's Daughter. Where were you born? I was born in Lima, Peru. <laughs> Whoa. Completely off the wall. <laughs> what, to a Scandinavian parent? Yeah, my mom is Swedish um, and my dad is American and he worked in the foreign service. So we moved and bounced around a lot when I was a kid. And when did you re discover the Scandinavian origins or the passion of baking in your bloodline? Um, you know, it's funny. I think I had always known that they were bakers because my grandmother was a really good baker and my mom is too. But it wasn't until I kind of told my parents that I was considering going to pastry school that my mom was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's in your blood. And I was like, oh. So how did it work, pastry school? Tell me, do you, do you, you right out of high school, you decided you wanted to go the culinary route? No. So I, I was, how old was I? 26 or 27 when I went to pastry school. I had already done college and I was working in television marketing in oh. London. Yeah, for the extreme sports channel, you know, because I am a very extreme sporty type person. <laughs> Completely untrue. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was doing that. And I just really wanted to work with my hands. And I didn't like desk job work. You know, I didn't feel fulfilled by answering emails at the end of the day. So no offense to anyone who does feel fulfilled by that. Well, we get it. We get into this nitty gritty of people shifting in their 20s uh, where their academic debt considerations, cost of living considerations, relocating from London. How did you end up in Richmond? Yeah. So I went to pastry school in Paris. Um, I went to the Cordon Bleu there. There were definite cost considerations. But again, 
you know, I have been very fortunate in my life that I have had some family money that I could use. Mm -hmm. So I used that to pay for the schooling. And then coming back to Richmond was kind of a natural choice because my parents lived in the area. My sister lives in the area. So it's just kind of. How long was pastry school? Uh, it was a year. And how do you get placed coming out of it? Is there like a cell night? Do people hear around the world that there's this really <laughs> gifted Swedish chef? No, you just apply for internships um, afterwards. And then after your internship, um, you know, they can hire you or not, or you can go do an internship somewhere else. So I did my internship at La Durée. Um, Where is that? La Durée is in Paris. It's fairly famous for being... I'm so uncouth. No, Sorry. you're fine. There's it's a certain je ne sais quoi to my <laughs> it's ignorance. It's all good. It's famous as being the first place that started making macaroons way back in like the 1800s or something like that. So yeah, it's a very famous old Paris pastry shop that now has like a global footprint. So started there as an intern, cracked eggs and grated lime zest <laughs> until my knuckles bled. Um, and then after my internship, they hired me and I worked there for about two and a half years. So is there a vow of poverty involved in doing that as kind of an expat? Yeah. What are you supposed to do? Work tables on the side, make ends meet? We hear about the grind here. Yeah. The people who are actors, if you go in the theater district who are working tables or people who want to work in restaurants who take on waitressing jobs or other things in order to be able to get that chance to take over as deputy sous chef one day. Yeah. No, it was definitely, you know, you'd did what you could, and you also just kind of budgeted really tight. Like, you know, there was no fancy dinners out. So the true bohemian lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Were you hankering to come back to the United States to bring these skills back? I was, yeah. And I was also, I had been living overseas for almost 10 years at that point on my own as an adult. So it was kind of like, I want to live closer to my family so that I can be around for my family. So, Is there a temptation coming out of the gate, coming back to the United States, that, look, I worked in these rarefied quarters. I went to school in these rarefied quarters. I learned zesting with the best of them. And uh, I don't need to pay my dues necessarily, that I could come back and set up a storefront and really flex my talents and get the word out about my food. No, I mean, no matter where you go, you always have to pay your dues. What the experience abroad gave me were names on a resume that opened doors to jobs. But in terms of me, you know, going into a place and being like, I'm the one who knows everything, like nobody knows everything, especially not in the culinary world, because, you know, two different chefs will tell you two different ways to prepare the same thing. And you could do it a third way and it would still turn out exactly the same. So it's more about, for me, the way that I like to work and do is show how I like to do it, show how they like to do it, and then you find how you like to do it. Why am I reminded of, if everybody must mention Kitchen Confidential to you, of the the baker, the drug-addicted baker in it that they had to rouse to get to work because he knew bread better than anybody else. You're at the boulangerie. And it's, uh, you know, you think you, you read back to Bourdain's own travails mm -hmm. in doing this and the struggle in getting noticed and the difficulty of breakthrough. Yeah. No, I mean, it's hard. And honestly, I kind of knock on wood every day because on Instagram, it can be very hard to get your content noticed. And somehow what I've been doing has just gained traction and taken off. And 
you know, I wasn't really expecting this to be where it is right now. Um, but it's been an amazing ride. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ingrid Schatz. She is the founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery in Richmond, Virginia. How do I describe it? The baked goods of uh, Scandinavian inspiration. It's a cottage bakery in Richmond, out of her own house. That this stuff is kind of like jewelry uh, when it presents. I mean, it's it's immaculately painted. I've ordered the princess cake. There's the cherry cake with yogurt glaze. The fika box, which I mean, had this aroma of cardamom. Um, I cannot describe it, and it definitely carves out its own niche. How did you come out of the gate, or what were the kind of the preparations of launching this thing in January of 2021, as we were having another wave of this wretched pandemic? Yeah. Um, so when it was time to put the rubber on the road, basically, I just kind of started small. I started with one product. I bought some packaging. I bought some ingredients, and I just kind of put it out there. And in January, that's usually the season in Sweden for a baked good called Semla. And they're kind of like a cardamom sweet bun. And you kind of hollow out the center and put in a little bit of almond paste and then pile it high with whipped cream and then put the little lid of the bun back on. They're super decadent. They're amazing. And they're only available from like New Year's to Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras, basically. So that was my first product. But Ingrid, you didn't have a tasting for friends and family or everything, kind of a soft launch type thing where, tell me how jarring this is to the palate, rose water and cardamom. We have them in Persian cuisine, mm -hmm. in Persian ice cream, but you're going to sell to a decidedly American Southern clientele. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it. I know that it sounds crazy, but- You just did it cold turkey out of the gate. Yep. So what was that first week like? Um, it was, it was great. It was kind of overwhelming. Um, I learned a lot of things. Um, I learned my capacity, first of all. Um, and I learned what serves me in terms of my time and what doesn't. You know, that the first round of orders that I did, I delivered and I quickly realized this is not something I can use my time with because it took most of the day to do that. And I was like, I could be baking a lot more stuff right now. So yeah, it was kind of every week I learned more stuff, and it's super fun. You were listening to Ingrid Schatz, founder of Axel's Daughter Bakery, who's bringing Swedish sweets to America. You can listen to all of my interviews in their entirety wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. You can follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.